Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn with me, please, to um, the book of Revelation. We're going to uh, talk for the next few moments today about just a glimpse. When I was uh, young, Walt Disney World in Orlando opened up. I was raised in Daytona Beach, so we were about an hour, hour and a half from Walt Disney World. I remember the cost to get into the door of Walt Disney World was $7.95. Yes. <laughs> and you were given a book of tickets, and every ride had a ticket. Uh, there were A tickets for A rides and B tickets for B rides, and on down to, I think, E. I think E was the, the primo, uh, the, the big rides, you know, or F or G or I don't, know, I don't know how many tickets there were. But I remember you'd, get, you'd be given a book of tickets, and of course you'd need to go buy more because you had to go on Space Mountain one more time. <laughs> and um, I remember also my, my brother was in a high school band, and he was, they were going to have a parade, and he was marching. His band was marching in the parade, and so I was kind of there with the band. I was maybe 12 years old. And I was able to go behind the wall. I was able to go through the door back into the back of Walt Disney World where no one else gets to go. So I was able to see behind the scenes. What a, what a thrill that was at about 12 years old to be able to see something like that. Maybe you've been in those type situations to where everyone else is kind of held out there, but you get to go behind the scenes and it's quite a different view and you have an, a different appreciation uh, for the place that you're at and what you're seeing. Well, today, that's kind of what we're going to be able to look at is a glimpse behind the scenes to where the Apostle John has been banished on an island called Patmos, and he has what is called the Revelation. It is not the Revelation of the Antichrist or the Mark of the Beast. It is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at a portion of this as it relates to worship. So if you have your Bibles there and you're in the book of Revelation, let's turn to chapter number four. And what we're going to do is read um, chapter four, verse one, and then we're going to skip to chapter six. Let's get going, all right? He says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. Now let's skip ahead to chapter 6 in verse number 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So chapter 4 and chapter 5 talk about what happens in between these two bookends. John hears that voice, he sees a door open in heaven, and the voice says, come up. God is speaking to him, come up. I need to show you some things that are gonna take place. Chapter six, verse one says, here's the lamb that opens the first of the seven seals. Well, what happens in between that is a beautiful picture of worship. And we see that John is, he did not say, okay, before I go up there, I've got to grab my iPhone to get a video of it because some people are going to want to see this. So he, we, we don't get to see a video of what John sees, but what we do get is somewhat of an impressionistic painting. 
He comes back and he says, okay, the, the Holy Spirit's helping him write this. And he begins to write and he, be, he, he begins to describe things that to us might appear to be kind of strange unless you've seen Lord of the Rings. And then it'll be quite normal. <laughs> but it's more of an impression. It's, it's like I, I saw something that looked like and I saw this that looked like. And that's the way he writes in this revelation. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, he says, At once I was in the Spirit. Now, we know from, revelation, uh, from Romans chapter 8 that those who are children of God, we've been received the salvation that God offers us through Christ, and we are followers of Christ, that the Bible describes us as in Christ. And that is a position. It is not simply an experience. It is a position. And it is not a position that we have placed ourselves in. It is a position that God has placed us in through Christ, that we are in Christ. And no one can take you out of that position. Aren't you thankful for that? No one can take you out of Christ. No one, no one can come along and snatch you. You are in Christ 24-7. But here John describes something different of being in the Spirit or in connection with the Holy Spirit. He says all at once, some of the translations say suddenly. He says suddenly, all at once I was in the Spirit. And what is he talking about? He's talking about being in step with the Holy Spirit. Every one of us battled that and faced those obstacles to being in the Spirit, connected, walking with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And if we are following after the things of the flesh or the things of this world, we're going to get out of step with the Holy Spirit. And John is saying in this moment, I am in the spirit. And why was he suddenly in the spirit is because he said, yes, here's a door open in heaven. God speaks to him. I need you to come up here. I want to show you some things. And John says, yes. I would encourage you today to say yes to the Holy Spirit. Yes to walking in step with him because there are some things he wants to reveal to you. He wants to talk to you about and he wants to lead you into. And so if we'll say yes to the Holy Spirit, suddenly we will be in connection in close proximity to him. Well, Revelation chapter 4, let's begin reading and let's see what, what is in between these two bookends. Let's read. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, 
The third had a face like a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them, a, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Worship is the very thing that you and I are created for. Worship is at the core of who we are as people. When John comes up into this place of heaven, this worship scene, this worship service, it's almost a 
a degrading term to call it a worship service. This is going on all of the time in the most predominant, powerful place in the universe. And when he enters into that time and that place, there's one central theme that he sees. He mentions it over and over again when he first arrives, and it's the throne. His eye is drawn to the throne. He describes the throne. It's the center. It's the middle. And everything else that he describes is in relationship to the throne. There are these that surround the throne. There are more that surround the throne. And from the throne come this and from the throne. And there's one who sits on the throne. And everything is focused on the throne. Everything else is in relationship to it. I remember when I was in elementary school and it's the first day of school, the most nervous thing that I had to deal with was how close was my desk going to be to the teacher's desk. I did not want my desk close to the teacher's desk. I wanted my desk close to the prettiest, smartest girl in the room. I don't think they wanted me to be near them, but a guy has to have a dream. But in this situation, that's what we find. John is describing the throne. He's just drawn constantly to the throne. And that throne, what does that throne represent? What is that throne all about? We begin to see what... John is really focusing on here, and the first is that God has all authority. The word throne is mentioned 10 times, not including the 24 thrones that the elders are seated on. God's throne mentioned 10 times in just a short passage of Scripture because John's eye is focused on the throne. It's drawn toward the throne, and that's the way our eyes should be as well. Even though in the world that we live in, in the situation that we're dealing with right now on this planet and in this world, sometimes we wonder, is there an authority? Is there someone in charge? I was scrolling through Facebook. That's my, uh, really the only thing that's probably worth, is scrolling on Facebook and just, um, I, I, I saw someone put a caption, does anyone else agree that the world has just gone crazy? You know, it's kind of trying to sum up what a lot of people are feeling. And with the world in which we live, and there is chaos, and there is wars and rumors of war, and let us not be deceived into thinking that we have it so bad in America. Do a little traveling, and we find out that we're doing great. But the world as a whole has many problems, and will until... But even though with all the problems and the famine and the fighting and the disruptions and the chaos, we can begin to wonder, is there anyone in charge? Is there anyone who's really got this under control? And John here gives us that picture of the throne. There is a God who is in authority, even though what we're experiencing and seeing appears to be very chaotic. And yet God's throne is established in heaven and he is in charge. And we find assurance in that, that even though things are going on around us, there is an authority that is above all of this chaos, and that's God. We come to God in praise, and the psalmist wrote, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. We we start off with praise, and what is praise? It's a matter of saying, God, thank you. You did an amazing thing. 
you blessed me, you've given, you've, you've blessed my family, my friends, my health, my strength. God, thank you for all the things that you've done. You've blessed me here, you've blessed me. That's praise. We go, God, praise you, God. You're, you're awesome and wonderful, but praise is supposed to lead us into a time of worship. And worship causes us to go to a transition into saying, God, I'm, I'm not here to admire you, to, or to admonish you, or to, to honor you because of what you've done, but simply because of who you are. Your authority. You're on the throne. No matter what you do, you're on the throne. No matter what happens, you are the God of this universe, and that's why I worship you. And we transition from wonderful, great praise into a deeper realm called worship, to where we stand in awe of God, and we lose sight of even what's going on on this earth. We, we in those moments, just lose sight of the chaos, and we are focused on the throne of God and His authority. We recognize that there is one who in a moment's notice with a proverbial snap of his fingers can change everything and one day will. One day he will lean over and say, sound the trumpet and things are going to change. But until then, we understand that he is still in charge and we rest with that assurance in Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it talks about the, the living creatures will begin to worship God, and the 24 elders would then fall down on their knees and worship God. We see somewhat of a cascading effect. We see a, a, a one does this, and then another one does that, and we're much the same way. It's a time of praise and worship. Uh, when we, we hear people praise and glorifying God, it causes us to remind ourselves of how blessed we are. And when we experience the, in the presence of someone worshiping God just for his authority, just for who he is, it reminds us that we've got to move beyond simply praising God for our blessings and honor him for who he is. It's that cascading effect. That's why worship is so important. That's why when we come together as the body of Christ, it's vitally important that we do that. Because we feed off of one another. We understand that with raising our kids, right? Who do you want your kids to hang around with? The worst kid in school, right? Wrong. Yeah, you want, you, you want, you, you want your kid to raise your kids in a good atmosphere. Well, we are the same way even as adults. We need one another. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says, don't forsake assembling yourselves together. Vitally important in bringing encouragement to one another. We see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, that there is suddenly this movement towards something and, and John becomes emotionally engaged in it. There's a scroll and, and there's a search for someone worthy to open up the scroll and, and John is engaged in what is happening and he says, I wept and wept. Some translations um, say, I wept bitterly. He becomes engaged, involved. And he's saying there's, there's, there's supposed to be some movement here. There's supposed to be something happening, but yet there's a search for someone worthy and no one is found. That's always intriguing to me. It's, it's kind of like there was a search and no one was found. But don't y'all know everything anyway? Don't, you were searching, but no one was found? And that verbiage is there for us to let us understand that, that there is no one not only on this earth, but there's no one in heaven who's worthy to open up that scroll, to loose those seals. 
And he's just there for us to let us know that there is one who is worthy. And of course, he's the one that steps forward. The elder says to John in verse number five, do not weep. The elders engage with John. John's engaged with the elders. And the elder says, don't weep. Now, why is that? Because there was one found who was worthy. And that shows us that God has all salvation. There is one who brings salvation and not many. That is uh, so tedious for us to say because in America, we believe that all roads lead to heaven. I'm talking about just kind of a, a philosophy in America. I mean, why limit it to just one, right? That's so mean. And yet God said, I provide a way. And therefore, we follow his lead. There's one way to heaven. There's one name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. There's one. And so there's one salvation. And all salvation comes from God. There are a lot of means of help, but one means of salvation. There's a lot of help out there. You can get help from people who aren't even Christians. They some really smart people that can help. But there's only one way of salvation. And can I just talk about us for a minute? I mean, pastors and preachers, can I just kind of mention for a moment that there have been in the last several years, a lot of Sunday morning psychologists. I'm talking about me, I'm talking about us, preachers. We want to give help. We want, we want to give help and help and help. And that's good. But salvation is the main deal. And so we've got to preach salvation. We've got to talk about salvation because that's really it. It's like, it's like if you went to the doctor and you had a cut on your finger and cancer in your lung and he focused on your finger. The finger's important, but not as important as something else. There's one salvation and God has all salvation wrapped up in that gift of Jesus Christ. So we see here a small glimpse of that one who is in heaven and who is worthy to open up the scroll and loose its seals. Now, we, we know the images of power, right? Uh, in America, we have the, the eagle, the, 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 the grandness and the, the, the majesty. Uh, but there's also lions and bears and tigers. There's all kinds of imagery that people or companies or nations will use to say, this is the symbol of who we are. We are, we're powerful. And I thought, I thought, what a tragedy it would be if a, if a high school uh, chose its mascot to be a butterfly. Imagine being on that football team. You know? Like, we're going to crush you with our wings. <laughs> it just doesn't work. And yet, in this moment, when there's no one found, and then the, the elder says, no, don't weep. There, there's one. And John looks, and what he sees is something that is alarming, in a way, because he says, I, I looked and I saw a lamb. Not, not the normal epitome of strength. Lambs don't attack. 
The only defense that they have is to run. And yet God uses this imagery of the lamb to show that I could overcome you with might and strength, but I have provided salvation through a symbol of a lamb. Innocent, gentle, harmless. And John says, I, I see a lamb, and it looks as though it's been slain. Not only is the lamb provided there, but it looks like it's slain. It still bears the mark of slaughter, because that is what God has provided for us for salvation. A lamb, the son of lamb. It's not that he doesn't have any power. The, the Bible describes him as there's seven horns. Horns always means authority in the Bible. There's seven there's seven eyes sent out into all the world there's, there's, that he's everywhere at all places. He has all power, all knowledge. He has all of that arsenal, and yet he presents as a lamb. The invitation to salvation is given by the lamb. The invitation is given right now. The invitation is given every time someone hears the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what do we do with that invitation? We simply say yes. Just like John said yes to going up and seeing this vision that God wanted him to see, we say yes to the salvation that God gives us. The third and final thing that I want to mention is eternity. All eternity God possesses. Time and eternity are his. We see in this very small glimpse of heaven, this worship service, if you will, in chapter 4, verse 8, 9, and 10, it references the one who lives forever and ever, the one who lives forever and ever, the one who always is and always will be. God is eternal, and he's caused us to be eternal. Have you ever, have you ever um, found out that time just seems to be flying by so quickly? I, I, I was talking to John Ryan this week here at the church, and we were talking about an upcoming event, and I said, yeah, in March, we're going to begin to talk about that. And he looked at me, and he said, it is March. <laughs> Man. You ever get to the end of the year and go, how'd that happen? You know, we just put the Christmas decorations away. We got to get them back out. Even when you talk to like people in the end stages of their life, many times they will look and they'll just say, man, it went by so fast. You know, I, I did this and that, that, but it just went, whoosh, went by so fast. Why is that? Why is it that you can talk to somebody who's, you know, quite aged? And they just go, well, it just went, it went by so quick. It's because we were made for more than just this life. We were made for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God has put into the heart of man eternity. He's put eternity into man. And so that's the way we think. That's the way we're geared. That's the way we're supposed to. And so what happens on earth seems to be very, very short and quick. And so we have this moment where we praise and worship God from this perspective, but there'll be that time when we are in heaven and we're also glorifying and worshiping God for who he is because we were made for eternity. And I would ask, are you ready for eternity? Are you ready for that moment to meet God face to face? Are you ready for that? In Christ, we're ready. Apart from Christ, we're not. But in Christ, we're absolutely and completely ready. And in that moment, what is it that we will say? We'll begin to worship holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. 
What does the word holy really mean? The word holy means perfection or beauty. It doesn't mean um, weird and stuffy and, and, and um, strange. It means perfect. In other words, we're, we're saying, God, you are holy, not because you blessed me with a promotion. You're holy just because you're perfect. I worship you with the words holy, 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 because you are perfect. You, you are the epitome of beauty, majesty, awesomeness. There is, there is, what other word can be used than to say perfection, perfection, perfection. That's what you are. In chapter 5 and verses 9, the word tells us that they, the elders sing a new song. They sing a song about what God has done, how God is ruler of the earth and ruler over heaven, and that there is the lamb slain who has redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And God has made them to be priests to minister to God. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to being in heaven in which there will be people from every tribe and language and nation. It is going to be a very diverse place. And I would just uh, submit this. If, if you don't like diversity of people, um, learn how to, because heaven's going to be that way. Heaven is going to be a wild place filled with people that look a lot different than you and I, that speak a different language than you and I. Of course, Ralph Santos says that the language we'll all speak in heaven is Spanish. Who knows? We worship God coming through praise into worship. Can I describe it this way so simply, I guess, and that is that praise is like being on God's front porch and worship is like being in his living room. We start off by saying, God, I'm, I'm entering your gates with praise and I thank you for what you've done. Thank you for how you've blessed me. Thank you, God. But I wanna move past that into that place of just simply admiring for you for who you are not what I have. Just to say, God, you're amazing. You're great. You, you don't have to give me anything else. Lord, you're great. Worthy of all praise. And we just begin to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.